uh, of why we felt this, this was important. The first one uh, is because it focuses us on uh, Jesus Christ, and it brings us uh, to God. And the Gospel of John, um, it's not really the Gospel of John, is it? It's the Gospel of Jesus Christ written by John. Uh, all the four Gospels are the Gospels of Jesus Christ, but written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, and this Gospel particularly uh, has a more sustained focus on the glory of Jesus Christ than any of the others. And it starts right in John 1:14, which is, "...the Word became flesh, dwelt among, among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father." And the times we live in, they are challenging, uh, not just with COVID, but uh, our uh, secular, often anti-Christian uh, society that, that we live in. Um, it can be very challenging. It's challenging for the church. It's challenging for the church to uh, gather even, as we know, with what COVID has done. They're challenging times for us. And so we are thinking, well, what do we need to be focusing on at this time? And uh, so that's really what led us to this. Well, we need to focus on Christ. John Owen uh, was writing a book called Meditations on the Glory of Christ. He was actually writing it when he died, and he says this. He says, the revelation of Christ deserves the severest of our thoughts, the best of our meditations, and our utmost diligence in them. What better preparation can there be for our future enjoyment of the glory of Christ than in a constant previous contemplation of that glory in the revelation that is made in the gospel? We don't talk like that so much these days, but I love that the severest of our thoughts. Um, the, you know, this is something to get serious about. We want to contemplate who Jesus Christ is. It's the best place for us to focus on right now is on the Lord Jesus Christ. And this uh, book written by the Apostle John, the one uh, who is described as the disciple whom Jesus loved, it gives us a real intimate flavor of intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And so it's a great book for us to be looking at. And the picture of Jesus that we see in the Gospel of John is also quite distinct from other Gospels uh, in that it shows Jesus unmistakably one with the Father who sent Him, this great I Am who was before all time. It shows that He is clearly one with Him. And yet we also see this Jesus who testifies that He does nothing on His own. He does nothing on His own. His words are the Father's words. His works are what He has seen the Father show Him to do. And His authority rests not in Himself, but in His total obedience to the Father's will. As another commentator, Ramsey Michaels, writes, he says, perhaps because of this intriguing mix of self-assertion and humility, equality with God and submission to the Father, Readers through the centuries have fallen in love with the Jesus of the Gospel of John. It's this amazing picture of this holy God, one with the Father, the Holy Spirit, but submitted, living His life, doing everything the Father tells Him to do. So, I want to encourage you as we go through these weeks to 
meditate on Jesus and really to fall in love with Him again. We need to fall in love with Him afresh. The second reason we're looking at the Gospel of John is because it is so evangelistic. It focuses on the simplicity of Jesus' mission, that Jesus was sent to accomplish the Father's will. He was sent so that people would believe in Him. He was sent that He might lose none of those whom the Father has given Him. And then again and again in this book, we are called to believe, 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 believe in Jesus Christ. And so we've called the series Believe. And what is really uh, exciting about it is you see how simple outreach evangelism is when you read this book. Steve was encouraging us last week about just moments he's had where he's been able to share with people, uh, and it was great just to have those stories encourage us. We see in this gospel uh, really the simplicity of our mission because we see that the early Christians and the, the Christians when Jesus was there, they were simply said, come and see. They met Jesus, they encountered Him, and then they went to others and said, come and see. So we see it uh, in John 1:46, where Philip, after he's been called by Jesus, he goes to Nathaniel and he says to him, come and see. The Samaritan woman uh, at, at the well, she goes back into the town, we read in chapter 4, and what does she say to the people in the town? She says, come and see, come and see, come and see. Philip, the Samaritan woman, they weren't trained theologians, uh, they weren't missiologists, they, they hadn't been trained in that, but what did they do? They encountered Jesus, the living God, and then they said, okay, come and see, come and see, look who I've met. And that actually is, is what we are called to do. It's quite simple, really. We're called to encounter Christ, encounter Him, to know Him, to let His love be poured out in our lives. And then we go to everyone else that we know and everyone that we meet, and we say, come and see who I've met. Come and meet the one that has changed my life. We can get so overly complicated in what we have to do. You know, how do we, what programs are we going to run? What, and they can all be good things. But our basic mission is to say to people, come and see. Come and see what I've found. This is what I've found. Come and see what I have found. So I'm hoping that as we look through uh, this gospel, you're going to be caught up again in the simple mission that we call to, come and see that as we encounter Him, as we know His love poured out afresh in our lives, we feel our hearts rekindled in love, the effect will be, okay, come and see this love that I have found. So that's why we're doing this. And now I want us to, I thought to kick us off, obviously we can look at when the book was written and all these things, but I didn't feel led there. I want us to actually look at three moments of John and Jesus. And just to uh, grasp something of John's encounter with Jesus and to learn from that ourselves. So we're going to look at three uh, pictures, three moments, there are plenty of moments that John had with Jesus. And 
Uh, you can use your imagination a bit of what, of what it looked like. What did it look like? What did it feel like for John? So the first one is when Jesus calls John. We read in Matthew 4, uh, 21 and 22. This is Jesus going on from there. He saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. That was the start of it all for John. Um, we're not exactly sure how old John was, but he was most likely younger than Jesus. Uh, possibly he was one of the, the youngest, if not the youngest, of all the disciples. Maybe he was uh, early, mid-twenties, somewhere around there. And as we see, he was a fisherman. Uh, he had a brother named James, father, Zebedee, uh, doing the family business. Uh, the family business, uh, they're probably taking it on from their father, Zebedee. And um, being a fisherman in those days uh, was quite a, a fairly good job because it meant you employed people. It talks about the hired men. They, they employed people. It was a business, uh, caught the fish, uh, sold the fish. It would have been uh, a job with prospects. He, as a young guy, he would have been learning the family trade. Uh, his future, you know, would have looked good. He was taking this on uh, from, from his dad, working with his brother. He had other partners, actually Peter and the other disciples. It seemed like they were in partnership together. So he had prospects, probably had good prospects for a wife because he was going to be, you know, have a good job. He was going to uh, have some money, uh, employees, uh, and everything probably looked fairly positive for him. And then Jesus comes walking along this beach. They're there. They're fixing their nets. They're in the boat. Uh, I, I don't know what you do, but I guess you fixing holes in the nets. Uh, you know, there they are. They're getting it ready to go and catch more fish. And then this guy comes along the beach. I don't know exactly what he says, but he just say, come follow me. Come follow me. And John gets out of the boat and leaves everything. It says immediately. Immediately he got out of the boat. He didn't wait around. He didn't think, oh, well, this would be interesting. I think I should read some books about this. Uh, I think I need to examine this further. There's something in his heart that said, yes. There's something in his heart that said, yes, I've, I've got to follow. And so he took this rather rash step. I wonder if Zebedee thought, what are you doing, son? You're just, I'm giving you this business. You're chucking it away. You're throwing it all away because he left him behind and said, I'm going. I'm going. It's an incredible moment because he's walking away from everything. He's walking away from financial security, from the family business, all these things that the world tells us we need doesn't it? The world tells us we need these things. We need financial security. You need to find a husband or a wife. You need all these things. But he walks away from them, and he says, I'm going to follow you, Jesus. Now, not many of us in this room, if any of us, have had to walk away from everything to follow Jesus. There are people around the world who have to do that. Muslim countries, they have to. Uh, actually leave their families, leave everything to say yes to Jesus. 
When I became a Christian, I was at university. I didn't have to give up my university uh, degree to, to say yes to Jesus. I didn't have to uh, give up my family and leave my family to say yes to Jesus. My parents weren't that impressed uh, because they weren't Christians, but I didn't have to uh, give up. I didn't have to leave them. I didn't have to leave them. But John here, he gives up everything to follow Jesus. He was wholehearted in his response. And he literally died right there in the boat to everything the world has to offer. He died right there in the boat. He said, I'm dying to this. I'm leaving it. Everything the world has to offer, and I'm following this man, this teacher. He gave up everything. And even though we don't have to uh, walk away from our careers, we don't have to walk away from our families necessarily, but it's the same call on every single one of us to die, to die to ourselves. That is, that is the call on us. When I say I'm following Jesus, I'm a disciple, it means I'm dying to everything else. I'm dying to the world, I'm dying to the desires of my flesh, Yes, I continue in a career, but it hasn't got the same attachments, the same pull on me. It's not the most important thing in my life. Having a husband or a wife is not the most important thing in my life. Actually, I've said, no, I'm going to die. I'm going to die to that. I'm going to follow Jesus. It's a wholehearted commitment. And John didn't, we use that expression, hedge our bets, I'm not even sure what it means really, but it means we kind of put a bit here and we put a bit there. Well, maybe, you know, we'll, we'll stick with Christianity, but we'll, you know, keep this going. If that doesn't work out, uh, you know, I'm not quite sure. Will I just, you know, walk the tightrope, uh, keep a bit of everything? But actually, we are called to a wholehearted commitment to die to those things. To use another saying, put all our eggs in one basket. That's what we're called to do. Called, say, yes, Lord, I'm totally, 100% yours. And even after having done that, you know, sometimes as Christians, as our lives go on, we kind of, we almost can start to put one foot back and start to trust in other things again. We can start to say, well, actually, yeah, you know, my, I am trusting in the fact that I have this money, my retirement is secure. You know, I'm, I'm setting it aside. There's nothing wrong with, with having finances for a timer. But, but is your trust sitting there? Is that, is that what you're resting in? We can so easily start to move back there. Jesus says, follow me. It's all in him. John left everything. I don't know if he had regrets uh, through those three years as, you know, they, they moved around. They <clears throat> didn't have a house. They followed Jesus. Times were difficult. Um, and then he dies. Then he's crucified. It's really hard, difficult times. It wasn't follow me and now it's all, you know, everything's going to be rosy. No, that was a challenge. It was hard. Their faith was tested. Their belief was tested. They were challenged again and again. But it was a complete surrender, staying there, saying, God, I've died to myself. I'm now yours. And we know that. We are new in Christ Jesus totally born again. We've died to our old selves. Where are you this morning? Where are you this morning? Are you hedging your bets? Are you still trying to decide? 
Maybe you're still trying to decide. But actually God's saying, follow me wholeheartedly. Make that choice. Just step right in and say, yes. Yes, I'm following you, Lord Jesus. I give you everything. Second picture, we see, um, see when Jesus selects John to be one of the 12 apostles. We read in Mark 3, Mark 3, uh, so there's a whole crowd. Verse 7 says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. A large crowd uh, followed them. And then in verse 13, it says, Jesus went up on the mountainside and called to him those he wanted. And they came to him. He appointed 12, designating them apostles that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Another picture of uh, where we need to kind of use our imagination. Jesus goes up on this, this uh, mountaintop, this, this hilltop, uh, and all the disciples, they're kind of gathered, gathered below him, and they all want to be his students. That's what happened in those days. You, you know, you committed yourself to a teacher, you followed that teacher. They all want to be his, his students, and Jesus is going to uh, call out of that group, the ones that he has chosen. Uh, I know if you can imagine it, but imagine there's John, and he's in the group, and he's a zealous young guy. He's given up everything. He's followed Jesus, but so have others. They're all doing that, and he, but he knows. He just wants to be with Jesus. That is the most important thing for him, and Jesus is going to choose 12. Um, so he's looking at the crowd, and there's the crowd below him, and Jesus is saying, I'll take you, Marge. I'll take you, Anne. I'll take you, Ruth. And he gets to 12, and those are the 12 that he's chosen. You can imagine John, he's standing there, and he says, John. You imagine Jesus looks him in the eye and says, John, I'm choosing you. It would have been such an incredible moment. He would have been so excited, I'm sure. You can imagine, maybe he was a bit, is he going to choose me? And then suddenly he says, John, and his face would have beamed. He would have been so excited because he's been called to live with Jesus, to be loved by Jesus, to eat with Jesus, to be taught by Jesus. It would have been an amazing experience for John, knowing that he was going to be with Jesus and Jesus would be his teacher. Well, fortunately today, Jesus isn't here in body, flesh like this, but by the Spirit, he calls and chooses many, many more than 12. And he calls us and he says, I want to love you. I want to teach you. He draws us right in, like John. Our response when he does that isn't like, you know, we often talk about I've made a decision to follow Jesus. Well, we do in faith that is given us by God say yes, but actually, God says, I've chosen you. He takes hold of you. And each one of us who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, Savior here today can know that he has chosen you. Heidi, he's taken hold of you, Heidi. He says, I've chosen you to love you and to fill you with my spirit. I've chosen you. Isn't that the most incredible thing. Jenny, he says to you, I've chosen you, Jenny. I've chosen you. 
and drawn you, right in Yahima, he says, I've chosen you. Just feel the, the awe of that again. Isn't that incredible? He says, I've chosen you. And he brings us right in. <clears throat> he brings us right in to know him, to know him in the most incredible way. He chooses us. We need to remember that, that he is, when he looks at you, he says, you are the one I've chosen. You're my son, daughter. Come to the Father. Come through me. It's such an amazing thing. The third picture I want us to look at is when Jesus predicts his betrayal. Uh, we read in John 13. John 13. Um, <clears throat> so this is the Passover. And uh, verse 21 says, After he'd said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? And it's this, again, amazing picture. So uh, it's going to be uh, the Passover feast, and um, Jesus knows that his time is coming uh, where he's, he's going to give his life. Uh, but he tells, actually, Peter and John to go ahead uh, as they're coming to Jerusalem. He says, go ahead, uh, set up this upper room. You'll find it. Uh, set it up so that we can eat the Passover meal together. And again, I'm um, John. Um, I guess he was, he was a doer kind of guy as well. Him and Peter, uh, they head off. Uh, they find it exactly as Jesus told them. They get the upper room. Uh, they set it up uh, exactly as Jesus wanted, all set up, ready uh, for them to, uh, to have this Passover feast. And I reckon John was pretty excited because um, He's going to, they're going to have this amazing ceremony together out of the book of Exodus, uh, celebrating God liberating uh, His people uh, as they celebrate the Passover. And so they've got everything prepared, and then Jesus and the other disciples arrive uh, into, come up into the upper room. Uh, they've, Peter and John have got everything ready. They sit down uh, for, for the meal. And I thought my first picture, again, was old Leonardo da Vinci's painting, which is not what it looked like, as much as we love uh, that painting. But they weren't sitting at chairs, probably more like this next one, where they were, you know, around a table on cushions. Uh, that was probably more the scene of, of what it looked like, um, as much as Leonardo's painting is uh, very good. Um, so imagine that scene. Here they are, they... They're having this meal, and uh, Jesus got John sitting next to him. You think, I wonder if he asked John to sit next to him, uh, as, as Jesus is aware of what he's about to go through. He's, he's, he felt, it says he felt troubled in his spirit. He knew that this was going to be a difficult time. He wants his friend sitting next to him. He wants John uh, sitting there, sitting with him, because he knows it's difficult for him. And so they're having the meal. Um, must have been fun. I'm sure it was really good having, having the meal together. And then Jesus starts this uh, odd conversation. 
Uh, and he says, one of you who's sitting here around this table is going to betray me. One of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to do this terrible thing. And I'm sure the moods in the room shifted at that moment. And you can imagine the disciples. It's like, but, but we the 12 that you chose it. Who's going to, someone's going to betray you? And they're thinking, is, is that me? You know, John's sitting there, is, is, is it me? Am I going to do something? Am I going to do something? <clears throat> they're confused. They're not sure. And then, um, <clears throat> it's kind of classic, because Peter, the big, bold, uh, you know, Peter, who's, um, who's a leader, bold kind of guy, but um, he, he says to John, you ask him. You ask him who's going to betray him. It's a bit like, you know, as an older sibling, uh, you get the, the little kids to go and ask mom and dad because they've got the most chance of getting an answer, you know. You send, send them off. It's like, John, you ask him because they know how much Jesus loved <coughs> John. And so he asks, he actually, it says he leans back. He puts his head on Jesus' chest, and he asks Jesus, who will betray you? And Jesus answers him. And that picture is the most amazing, intimate picture of him leaning back, putting his head on Jesus' chest. I don't know about for you, but, but as a guy, <clears throat> that's uh, quite an intimate thing to do. I mean, Miles and Wes are uh, good friends of mine, but if I was to go and lie and put my head back on their chest, I reckon we'd all feel a bit awkward. <laughs> it's, it's a bit awkward. But John, John's love for Jesus trumped everything. It's, it trumped feeling awkward. He was happy to display his love for Jesus. And even in this difficult moment where John's thinking, is it me? Am I going to betray him? But instead of stepping away, and we so often do this, we, we do something wrong, we step away from God. We think, oh, am I just going to make a mess? We step away. But, but John actually just, he leans in. And he, he leans back against Jesus in this intimate moment and says, who is going to betray you? And Jesus answers him. Such an amazing picture. In this difficult time, there's this intimacy. And that is what Jesus calls every single one of us into. This real intimacy. And for us to express our love to him, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. You know, John, the other disciples, well, they can do what they like. He's going to lean in to Jesus. He's going to show his love. He's going to cuddle up close, actually, no matter what anyone else thinks. And so I wonder what's maybe stopping you or keeping you from pressing into him in that way today.